Both of us at Oklahoma Cold Cases are big readers. Huge, in fact. On average, I personally read about three books a week. And I find that a lot of my coworkers ask how on earth I find the time. The answer is simple. Audible. Whether I'm in the office, driving in the car, or even just at home, Audible is always there for me, keeping books alive. Not only does Audible have the largest library of audiobooks on the planet, they also have podcasts, including this one. With Audible, we're able to offer a special offer of a free month-long trial. Visit audibletrial.com backslash OKCC to start your trial today. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L dot C-O-M backslash OKCC. Welcome to The Throwaways, a podcast brought to you by Oklahoma Cold Cases. This season, we're discussing a series of murders that took place largely between 1999 and 2003. This podcast contains strong content that might not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Throwaways. I'm Amanda Newland Davis, and this week, we're going to continue what we started on the last episode. And that's telling you about the research that my partner, Jen Gregg, and I have continued to do over four years. After learning about the five original victims, we went on to see if there were any more victims that just hadn't been made public. Last time, we started in 2008 with Carrie Tidbull. This week, we're going back in time to 2005 to talk about the discovery of remains that would become known as Kiowa Jane Doe. Kiowa Jane Doe's remains were found in a farmer's field by said farmer in Roosevelt, Oklahoma, a tiny speck of a town in Kiowa County. They were found on July 13, 2005, and at the time, the only thing that was found was the very top part of her cranium. This fact hasn't changed at all over the years. The anthropologist that gets a hold of these remains decides she was probably between 17 and 30 years old when she died, was likely Caucasian, and had been in that field for no longer than 1985 to 2002. From there, well, here's the rest of the story. In Pam's episode, we did mention that about the time that she gets found, interesting things start happening. Even if Pam is an outlier, it's still interesting. And that's because Pamela was found in Kiowa County in 2003. And then in 2005, also in Kiowa County, a farmer who had been, I think he was just tilling his field or whatever it's called that they do. I think, yeah, he was, he was farming. Yeah, he was telling field. He was a farmer doing farmer things in a tractor and turns up part of a cranium, which is the skull. And it wasn't the whole skull. I think the bottom part of it was missing. It was just the top part of the skull. Yeah, there was no dental. They didn't, they weren't able to do dental, I believe. 
Um, well, they would have done partial dentals, but nothing. Well, they had to because, you know, remember, she had the weird incisor. Yeah, she had their top teeth, but there was no bottom jaw. And, you know, of course, he does what any normal person does when they find human remains. He calls the police who come out there and search for more body parts and nothing was ever found. They do this horrible, horrible clay head thing. The reconstruction is really, really awful. Yeah, it. I have to say that Kiowa Jane Doe is probably one of the worst reconstructions that I've seen to date. Granted, they didn't have a ton to work with. They didn't. So I give them, you know, definitely an E for effort. At least they tried because they didn't even really have to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 05, like the, the clay reconstructions were still kind of all the rage. Yeah. And so they did one with a couple of different eye colors, a couple of different hair colors, but it was still kind of horrible to look at. And even now, you know, we posted on our Facebook page in March of 2021, trying to get more leads and who Kiowa Jane Doe could possibly be. That was like the number one comment was like how horrific the reconstruction was because it was. Yeah, it was distracting. It was distracting from the post. People were so distracted by the reconstruction that they weren't really paying attention to the details. Yeah, Kiowa Jane Doe becomes, you know, very interesting and very personal for us because in looking at Lawton, it's almost impossible to look up the Lawton serial killer without Kiowa Jane Doe coming up in some fashion because where her body was found was about a quarter mile from where Pamela was found. And of course, Pamela was found really close to Mandy Raid, I think. Yeah. And it, it looks like a chain. It looks like they're connected. And, you know, we should mention too, that they didn't find anything in the farmer's field, but we're, our theory is that she was probably Buried in a shallow grave someplace further away and her skull was carried. Or in water because, you know, there was flooding. Yeah, we had looked up where, um, where she was left. And if you look really close, there's, there's a creek that's very close. And again, the Wichita Wildlife Preserve is really close to that as well. So that kind of gives a lot of options. Of where to leave someone and how she gets found and the fact that there aren't other remains in that field mm-hmm. kind of tells you that she was probably drugged there by an animal. I, I think that is the logical conclusion. Yes. Of course, without looking at her autopsy, I couldn't say because I requested her autopsy, I think, in 2019 and was told that because she was unidentified, uh, I couldn't have it, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me honestly, because autopsies are public record. And even if she was identified, I could still have it. So I'm not really sure the point of not letting me have it. I guess their idea is that it should go to the family before the public can see it. But I mean, that doesn't even make any sense because there's been like Marie Dighton's case. I think that's how the family saw the autopsy was the media had it and released it. Not that I was going to try to release it, but I 
would have liked to have read it. It would be help for our research. She gets found in 05, in July of 05, and just kind of sits in a box somewhere. Yeah, there's not any media fanfare about the the finding of the, the cranium. Um, we've searched high and low. Yeah, we searched newspapers. We Even local newspapers. Google, we searched it all and could find no... There was no, you know, hot off the presses news release that, hey, this woman's skull has been found. Yeah, nothing. And so it feels like they just had more pressing things to do. Yeah, I mean, it really does. But the anthropologist gets a hold of her at some point. And And just for clarification purposes, the anthropologist that's responsible for all of these unidentified victims in Oklahoma, it's pretty much one woman. And her name is Angela Berg. And she's honestly very good at what she does. And in really champions these unidentified victims and does what she can for them is very good at her job because she's, she states that Kiowa Jane Doe likely died any time between 1985 and 2002 and that she was 17 to 30 and a white female. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, really all we knew about Kiowa Jane Doe until later because in 2021 she gets identified. Yeah, so in September 2021 after the DNA has been tested through the University of Austin, I believe, they identified Kiowa Jane Doe as a woman who'd been missing since 2002. Correct. The identification took sort of took us by, it was like getting slapped in the face with who it, it ended up being because it was somebody we had already been looking into Yeah, as having gone missing from Lawton and possibly being connected to the rest of the Lawton victims because of her circumstances of disappearance. That would be Rebecca Jean Walden Boyd. Rebecca Jean Walden was 28 years old when she went missing on July 26, 2002 from the Lawton, Oklahoma area. Pretty soon into our research of the Lawton serial killer, we found Becky's case, and it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that Becky was likely related to the rest of these cases. Not because she was a sex worker, but because of the circumstances of her disappearance. This is a belief that we continued to have all through our research. So when Kiowa Jane Doe gets identified as being Rebecca Jean Walden, well, it more than took us by surprise. In fact, it was groundbreaking, earth-shattering for us. Because somewhere in the midst of all of this, Kiowa, well, she became our person. She became the person that no one was actively looking for. Except they were looking for her. Becky was looked for all along. And Becky, as she was known, went missing in 2002 by saying that Kiowa Jane Doe is estimated to have died from 1985 to 2002 is sort of spot on. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with it. And she was uh, Becky, Becky Walden, as, as we call her. Becky Walden, because um, the Boyd was an estranged husband. They were in the process of divorcing That's when correct. she went missing. So, you know, Boyd was no longer going to be Boyd for very much longer. So Becky Walden is how we re- refer to her. And it was 
it was so weird too because you know it was like what one in the morning when we get notification from becky's sister shay yeah and and just to be frank you know one one thirty in the morning is not an ideal time to be getting kind of irate messages from family members and just kind of luck of the draw i'd been awake i think i'd been working that day so i was awake and get on there and it was shay kind of yelling at me for my write-up i had done about becky previously she wasn't angry at me she was kind of angry at the situation and grieving and reeling and it was at that point that she said you know becky's been identified so we log into namus because when you know that someone has been identified in a place where you're intimately familiar with the unidentified persons and the amount of unidentified persons, you can narrow down pretty quickly who it is. So from September on, we knew that Becky was Kiowa Jane. Yeah, it wasn't announced until December of 2021. That's correct. If I recall, didn't we notice that Kiowa Jane's name has got pulled down before the sister messaged us? No, no, no. It was immediate, though, that they removed both Becky and Kiowa Jane from NamUs, which is how we said it has to be Kiowa. There's there's, there's no other option. If she was found in Oklahoma, that's it. She has to be Kiowa. And it was sort of like getting slapped because we had been staring at Becky for three years. And that just kind of tells you about once you knew it was Becky, I guess you could see the similarity in the the reconstruction that got done. Yeah, but that's just because we're looking for, for for the familiarities between the two. Right. At that point, we know who it is. So it becomes easy mm-hmm. to see that it's her. But before then, I had I had the, the reconstruction and Becky up on my whiteboard and didn't make that connection. No, we looked at we looked at those two things all the time and the the thing with Becky's reconstruction is the way that it was done, it makes her look old. It did. And we're. I'm going to put it on her episode page on the website so people can see that aren't familiar with it, can can see what it looked like. I suppose that it, they kind of tried to determine who she was. There were 11 comparisons done that were listed in NamUs before Becky. Becky was like the 12th. Yeah, and they, they were actively, they were actively testing her DNA against people. They were. And, you know, for a long time, we said Kiowa, we felt that Kiowa Jane Doe was like the key to figuring out Lawton. That once, because it's almost like they played Kiowa really close to the chest. They really did. They kept everything very low key and uh, they didn't share any information. None. And, you know, at this point, they're still doing that. Yeah, which is why they didn't announce it for so long. Right. So the investigation bounced from Kiowa County, where she was found, back to Comanche County, because that's where Becky went missing from. But Comanche County isn't the one that made the announcement that she had been identified. It was the OSBI, which in and of itself is a little odd, because Becky wasn't on their playing cards, I don't think. Not that I know of. Mm -mm. But what would the OSBI, they had no involvement at any point other than they have involvement in the Lawton serial killer case. Correct. And Pamela Woodring is found really close to where Becky ends up getting found. 
which I feel like kind of makes their antenna go up a little bit. So we're sitting here and we're thinking that more more than likely they think that Becky was probably one of the victims. That it's connected somehow. I, I would almost have to assume. Yeah. So, you know, Becky goes missing um, in 2002. So if you're looking at... If you're looking at it as if Becky is a victim, 100%, that means she disappeared in between Janice Buono getting found mm-hmm. and Pamela Woodring getting found. Almost smack dab in between yeah. the two. She, Depending on who you talk to is where she was last seen. So we do know that she had gone to Lawton. She wasn't living in Lawton, I don't believe. I, she, she, was in, she was living in Muskogee. She was living in Muskogee. Yeah. I mean, or in Rush Springs. I've heard it both ways that she was living with her grandparents in Rush Springs. And then her sister says she was living in Muskogee. However, her missing persons report states that she was living in Rush Springs. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure where that goes. But she went to Lawton that day. Either way, if she went to Lawton that day for this specific purpose or not, it's what ended up happening. She. Becky was a walker. She didn't drive. She didn't have a driver's license at that point. And like many of the other girls, like many of the other girls and was known to take taxi cabs a lot because of that. These were the days before Uber. So taking a a cab was kind of your only option. Yes. So she walks around Lawton, however she got there. And she goes to her estranged husband's place of work. He worked as a mechanic over on Lee Boulevard in Lawton. And the narrative is that um, the narrative that Boyd gives is that they're separated, that she came to his place of employment in July, 20 on July 26th, around five o'clock. So like closing time for a lot of places and stated to him that she wanted to get back together with him. He said, no, thanks. And, that Becky stated she had $4 and was going to get drunk and left. And that is supposedly the last time he sees her. And this is the narrative that is written down in her missing persons report. Yeah. The last time she was seen, depending on the story you get, there is, she was seen leaving a gas station next to the mechanic's store. I don't know if it was next to or just down the road. Yeah, but it was nearby. It was, well, it would have had to have been nearby, that she had been on a payphone, and I guess there was a witness, I assume it would have been the attendant that was the witness, that he saw her arguing with somebody on the phone, and then she walked off, went missing, whatever. Where this gas station was, I don't know. Yeah, it's not actually named, there's no address given, and it doesn't say what the name of the gas station is. It's a very generic it is. And her son, her youngest son, I think is the one that told me that initially. I think at the time I had asked him who told you that because it's not in the missing persons report, which he would have known because he's the one that supplied the missing persons report to me. And I, I don't think that even he knew. I think it was like one of those just mm-hmm. e- accepted tidbits of her case. So, you know, Mr. Boyd reports her missing. Yeah. But only after four days of her being gone and after grandma of Becky says, you have to do this. You have to report her missing because they're not letting me. She had apparently been trying and they weren't letting her because technically speaking is the next of kin. Yeah, because she'd been trying. 
Yeah, and what happens next sort of just says that they didn't want to take the report. Because according to her sister Shay, what gets said is, you know, she's just a junkie. She's just a hooker. She'll be back. And we don't know where any of this is coming from. No. I mean, maybe the junkie part because uh, according to husband, she she had a, a drug problem. And maybe she had some, you know, I don't want to say problems with alcohol. I think she had maybe some overindulgences every once in a while. She did have a DUI, which is why she didn't have a license. So we're saying that she maybe she was a party girl. Yeah, I mean, realistically, it could happen to anybody. You think you're fine. You're not. It's not being a junkie and it's not being a prostitute. Either way, it's no, even if she was, it's no excuse not to look for her. That's true, yeah. But that's a thing that Lawton does. It is a thing that Lawton does. And that in and of itself sort of told us that she could be connected because she's walking down the road. She was last seen in a, in a sundress and sandals, so not like hiking clothing. She certainly wasn't walking back to Rush Springs. No. Or Muskogee, for that matter. We're assuming she got a ride. We have to assume she got a ride. And, you know, according to Mr. Boyd, she says, I'm going to get drunk. And then the narrative goes on to say that no one had seen or talked to her since July 26th at 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Which is him. That he He's putting himself there. Yeah. And then he says that... Becky likes to hang out at a bar there in Lawton called the Little Star Bar. The Little Star Bar is still a thing. It's still operational every night. In fact, we have other podcasters that we're associated with who recently drove by it to see who was there, basically. And they're... It's a lot staple. It is. And, uh, you know, according to police, they get called out there a lot. It's kind of a rough and tumble place. It's a biker place, isn't it? It tends to be a bit of a, a biker bar. Yeah. So he says that she frequented the Little Star Bar. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. I have no idea. There's nothing to confirm that. That's just one person's statement. That's just what the husband says. He also yeah. says that she knows a cab driver that goes by the name Dog and works for AAA Cab at Night. I don't know who Dog is. Um, a friend of mine knew someone that drove a cab um, na- that went by the name Dog. I don't know if it's the same guy. I mean, I have to assume there's a lot of guys out there that go by the nickname Dog. I, yeah, I think that's kind of like being called Daddy at this point. Or, you know, Big Larry. <laughs> it's like... It- yeah, it's one of those more common names, I would say. And in Lawton, there's no telling. But, you know, it is interesting because cab drivers is something that it comes up pretty often. It does come up a lot. You know, Jane Chafton was waiting for a cab. Cassandra Ramsey took taxi cabs. Janice Buono took cabs places. Like, it, it. Mandy Wright's like the only one. That drove. That we knew had access to it. Well, whether she had a license or not, she had access to a yeah. vehicle. Another thing that is a little bit weird in, res- in respect to, you know, Becky being listed as missing is the fact that this missing persons report doesn't come from Lawton PD. It comes from Comanche County Sheriff's. Yeah, and we don't know why. We don't know why. It is a little strange. Who goes to the sheriff's office to report someone missing? 
That's not my first step. Because they didn't, he didn't live in the country, right? He lived in town. He lived in town. He, yeah. he lived on uh, Northwest 24th, which is near where Tanya Hook lived. It's, it's in town. It's, you can't get any more in town than yeah. what that address is. So it's not like he was rural and he was, you know, didn't know who to go to. No. And the last place she was seen isn't even remote. Mm-hmm. It still should have been LPD, but it's not. I can't explain why. It's a little odd. It's a little strange. I don't think I've ever seen somebody that should have been reported to a certain department and then wasn't. And yeah. like another department took the report. So it is, I mean, maybe he needs somebody on the force and he was comfortable talking to him. Possibly. So then it, it, we tried, we requested Becky any records that had her name in them from Lawton Police Department. So we know factually that the missing persons report is they didn't have one either. No. So that's when we realized that it was actually from the sheriff's department because it didn't come up in the records request that I, I just did in October. Um, the records clerk said, we don't have a missing persons report for her. Like, are you sure she's missing is what kind of she said in email. And that's when I took a little bit closer of a look to see who did it. And it is Comanche County Sheriff. Yeah. We don't have any other cases, missing cases that are handled by sheriffs. Do we? Not, not that, that I can think not of. Not that I know of. No. What we did get back though was kind of interesting because as far as we know, nobody knew about it. And that is a record of a sexual assault that mm-hmm. Becky filed. And this happened less than a year before yeah. she went missing. In August of 2001, uh, Becky calls the Lawton Police Department that and says that she stated at a time that her five-year-old at the time let in the suspect. Now, the suspect's name is redacted from this report. The last name wasn't put in here. And that the, the five-year-old let this guy into the residence and she awoke while the the suspect was sexually assaulting her that she chased him out and went to a friend's house to call the police and and are we from the way the narrative is written are do we know if she knew the person are we assuming that the person i would have to assume that she knew the person because like she at least knew his first name because she gave the first name and the kid at least knew him Mm -hmm. on site so someone in the neighborhood maybe right it does look like they at at the very least arrested somebody yeah i mean are we thinking that they were there was someone charged maybe she knew him from this bar she supposedly hung out at that's true too i did ask shay if it was possible that becky participated in sex work in any shape or fashion so dancing you know massage parlors walking the street and she said to her knowledge no maybe dancing back in the day but not at this point so maybe then the connection with it is drugs it's totally possible maybe she knew something maybe she saw something yeah because maybe she was just friends with some of the girls it's totally possible that she's not even connected it's possible her husband killed her. It, it's equally possible. That's true. There's no evidence leaning one way or the other. There's only pieces of a puzzle that we're putting together from what we look, what we see. Yeah. Because there's not that much information about Becky. There's not. There, I mean, there truly isn't. Her son and his cousin ran a, uh, a Facebook page for her 
for a while. And, and just so we're clear here, this isn't, they may have identified her, but we still don't know what happened to her. Yeah, yeah. She's, her remains are home. That's the only difference. We still don't know who killed her, how she got where she was. No. Before beginning final production on this episode, I was able to speak to Becky's sister, Shay, on the record. A conversation in which you'll hear a good portion of next. However, I would like to let you know that in talking to Shay, she did clarify for me why Becky was even in the Lawton area to begin with. At the time she disappeared, Becky was getting herself back together. She was living near her sister and her oldest son in Muskogee. She was working at a place called Church's Chicken. She, in fact, had an appointment with the housing authority the following Monday after her disappearance. So, by all accounts, this is not a woman who just walked away. She had plans. Big plans. She only left Muskogee that day to go to nearby Rush Springs. And that's only because she was bringing her youngest son, who lived with her grandparents, school supplies for the upcoming school year. How or why she ended up going to Lawton from Rush Springs, we don't know because we do know that she did make it to Rush Springs. She left Muskogee that day, according to her sister, with two unidentified males. One was African American and one was Caucasian. They left in a beige or gold-colored sedan. And that is all the information we have about who could have been with Becky that day and brought her back and forth. I began my conversation with Shay by asking her how she met her sister Becky. And I say met because Becky and Shay didn't grow up with each other. They had kind of an abnormal family anyway. Her dad had seven kids, all by different moms, and none of them grew up together. So Shay didn't even get to meet Becky until she was about 17 years old. Here's her explaining how she found out about her sister Becky and telling me what Becky was like. I was 17 years old. And I get a call from Job Corps and they tell me that there's a little girl at Job Corps who is scared to death. And I'm like, you're calling me on my birthday to tell me about some little girl who's scared. I don't care. And they're like, Shayla, Shayla. No, her name is Rebecca Jean Walden. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. And it was my sister. She was this little bitty, tiny, nothing like me person you know, you hear about, you know, people who could light up a room when they walked in. That was her. She'd walk into a room and I'd have been there for an hour and nobody even noticed me. But Becky would walk in and man, everybody, who's this girl? And, you know, she'd, she'd have barbecues planned before in 30 minutes. She was friendly. She was kind. She was just a little bitty blonde headed girl. A couple of years later, she, she got married. She had her first son. I mean, I remember that day. I mean, he's almost 30 years old. And I remember that day, you know, like it was yesterday. We had gone to Tulsa to pick up another one of our siblings. I wouldn't leave her here in Muskogee because she was so far along in her pregnancy. So we go to Tulsa and the bus is late and I'm, I'm looking at her and she's having these contractions. And I'm like, oh my God, she's going to go into labor here, right here in Tulsa. So we get our other sibling and we get in the car, we get lost She's in labor in the back of a old-timey limousine, and she's in labor. Contractions three minutes apart. 
we get to Muskogee by the grace of God. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Bigsby and all of that, but we ended up coming in in the back way to Muskogee right there by the hospital. And we get in the hospital room and they're getting ready. And she, I mean, she's an active laborer at this time. She didn't want to have her son without her husband there. He was on his way. So she's like, nope. So she tries to get out of the bed. Of course, you know, she's an active laborer. When that child was born, my sister just glowed. She had fell in love for the very, 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 very first time. She was so in love with that little boy. So in love. She was that type of person, whatever her history or whatever her whatever, she loved her boys. It's not a very pretty story, but I want to say her oldest son was maybe eight. And she was living in Burden. And it was his birthday. His birthday's in January. This young woman hitchhiked from Chickasha, Verdon, Oklahoma to Muskogee so she could be here for her son's birthday. That's not a woman that just disappears one day and never contacts her children again. If she was here with the one son, she would write letters to the other son and vice versa. And she didn't just disappear. She just didn't walk out of their lives. Something tragic happened to their mother. Eventually, my conversation with Shay turns to the first few days after Becky disappeared and what happened. What happened was that Shay and Becky's grandmother on her mother's side begged her ex-husband to file the missing persons report because no one would take it from them because they weren't next of kin. So he does. He files one in Lawton and then Shay tries to file one in Muskogee where Becky technically lived at the time, and Muskogee wouldn't take one because one had already been filed in Lawton. And then after that, things get kind of weird with conversations between Shay and the law enforcement directly responsible for Becky's case. I contacted the sheriff time and time and time and time again and with misinformation. Probably three months after she disappeared, I contacted the sheriff and I'm not going to use his name, but he told me that Becky had been cited. And I knew that was a lie, but did he just tell me that because to get me to quit bothering him? They did not look for her. I don't know why that the sheriff, that that county sheriff told me that she had been cited three months later. But, you know, now we know that he lied. You know, he lied. I know that OSBI at, had been involved previously when this first happened because the young man he came and saw me here in Muskogee I know I know this agent and I know that unless he was given some type of information to the to the contrary he would have done a better job looking for my sister so you know at one point you had told me that when the report was filed, you were basically told that your sister was a junkie hooker. What did you expect to happen? Right. And that's, you know, that, and she was not. Um, right. She, she was, whether she used drugs or whether she didn't, I mean, we live in Oklahoma. Lots of people use recreational drugs. Whether she did, whether she didn't, whether she was not a prostitute, I, I want that, you know, very clear. She was not a prostitute. Whether she was, whether she wasn't, what, whatever she was or was not, she was a human being. Whether she was a party girl should have been irrelevant. Um, I haven't heard from OSBI since November. Which is when they said that they were going to release, release that they had found her. Because it took, it took them months. Right. 
um, to release that they found her. You know, they, they, they contacted us in September and they released it in November. But the story was not about Becky. No. That they released. That that was not that was not about a human being. That was about a piece of skull that they were able to identify. I think it was more about the OSBI praising themselves that they had finally Right identified this than it was saying, hey, this girl's been missing. I don't ever want it to be thought or said or misconstrued that I don't appreciate all they've done, what they have done, but they have not done enough. I then asked Shay about a recent news story that aired just a few days before we spoke for this interview. It aired on not a channel in Lawton where Becky disappeared, but a channel in Oklahoma City, and then was subsequently aired on several channels all around the state of Oklahoma. This news story wasn't necessarily about Becky. It was about mainly the five public victims of the Lawton serial killer. However, I was surprised to see in the transcript of this news story that they had mentioned Becky. In this news story, the transcript also says that while for the OSBI, the cases are alive and well and they'll never give up, but they also stated they hadn't been in contact with the victim's families. I asked Shay how she felt about that. Because me, I'd be infuriated if this was my loved one and the law enforcement responsible for investigating my loved one's disappearance and murder didn't even have the courtesy to reach out to us. And in hearing that as a family member, how does that make you feel? Enraged. Enraged. You know, in the USA, we live in a police state. We trust our law enforcement to do what needs to be done. And for the most part, they do. I mean, they do. But we don't know anything. We we know nothing. You know, we don't we don't know did she suffer? Was she alive when they when she was thrown in that field? Did she lay there for hours and hours in agony? What was there something that could have been done to save her if somebody had gone out and looked for her right then? We know nothing. I don't know why we know nothing. If the person that took Becky from this world and everyone she loves if they happen to be listening what would you like them to know you robbed my nephews you took from them an element that all children need they need a mother they need to know that they have a mother's love and you stole that you took it you did god knows what to that elemental piece of development in my nephew's lives and even though you stole that, even though you took it, they're okay. They're good men. You destroyed more than just my sister's life. You destroyed everybody that she ever touched. And that's between you and your creator. Because I've laid my sister's memory to peace. I want to be angry, but my anger is not going to solve anything. I don't care that... We've named her whatever we've named her. I don't care that they've branded her with this or they've branded her with that. Okay, I get you. But she was a human and she deserves to be remembered. 
She deserves justice. She deserves, I don't know how to put it into words. She deserves so much more than she was given. We, we are products of everything that happened to us. We are products of that. I just hate it that she's been reduced to, I hate it that she's been reduced to a piece of bone. And I know there's people out there that don't even have that. And I should be thankful that we have that. Just want people to know that she was a person. I want people to know that she was the best birthday present I ever received. I want people to know that when her first son was born, it was the first time that she truly loved anybody. I want people to know that no matter what happened or how angry or what the argument might have been, she is very forgiving. Didn't matter how many times her and her brother fought, she always forgave him. I want people to know how much she loved her grandmother. I want people to know that she was taken too soon, that she was snuffed out before she could truly shine. And that's a tragedy in itself. And more than anything, I want the world to know that she loved those boys. Those boys were her everything. And she didn't just walk away. If you have any information about the disappearance and murder of Rebecca, Becky, Jean Walden, you can contact the Comanche County Sheriff's Department at 580-353-4280, or you can contact the OSBI at their tip line, which is 405-848-6724. You can also email us by going to our website, oklahomacoldcases.org, and clicking on Submit a Case. You can remain anonymous if you wish to do so. My name is Amanda Newland Davis, and this is The Throwaways. Thank you for listening to The Throwaways, featuring Amanda Newland Davis and Jennifer Gregg. For more information on all of Oklahoma's cold cases, please visit oklahomacoldcases.org. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of our host and do not reflect the views of our affiliates, guests, or sponsors.